Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Mark Chandler is with us from Brown Brothers Harriman. He's their chief currency strategist, and he's he keeps track of Basically, everything that's going on, because as we've often mentioned on this show, currencies are the uh, uh, the weather vane for all things economic and uh, political. And right now, the focus is on the pound. Uh, and it is the currency driving the markets today, it appears, to the extent they want to be driven, because now we have a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of certainty about what's going to happen in the sense that we now have a date for Article 50, a rough date for Article 50 in the beginning of the process. So where does the pound go from here? I mean, in this, uh, we obviously get a knee-jerk reaction of the pound dropping, but does it continue to drop? And if so, how far? Or does it rally on the back of this better-than-expected economic news that we have seen in recent months? Yeah, I think that you're right. That's the key question is in the short term, you've got the You've got the uh, stronger economic data. That is in the sense that the referendum itself didn't really put the economy in bad shape. And if anything, the combination of the easy liquidity made provi- provided by the Bank of England, the rate cuts, and the weaker pound is helping cushion what could have been a, a more serious blow. And we see that with today's, as you mentioned, the PMI showed a big jump in export orders. But I th- I'm still concerned that in the longer term, as businesses begin making decisions for next year, the following year, whether it's uh, plant and equipment, whether it's hiring positions. I think that is when it's sort of uh, going to be feel more uh, impactful. And I sort of think it's more like uh, cooking frogs. You know, you uh-huh. put them in a, in a warm water, so you sort of lull them to sleep. And I'm afraid that's what's going to happen here. We're going to see, oh, the economy the is doing fine. Brexit's not such a big deal. Then they file for divorce. Businesses, including like Japanese auto companies, they say, we, we put production into the UK thinking we had access to the EU. And now you're going to take it away from us. We have to reconsider our business plans. Well, that's what Carlos Ghosn of Nissan, speaking of Nissan, said over the weekend. Yeah, so I think that this is just a tip of the iceberg. We've seen a, a survey, I believe, by the uh, Chamber of Commerce indicating a lot of businesses, majority of businesses, are reconsidering uh, their investment plans and hiring plans in the U.K. So I'm not, I'm not a big fan of Brexit. I think that the, the biggest winner from Brexit is not going to be the British people. I think sovereignty is going to prove very elusive. But I think those who have been favoring a disruption of Europe, a disintegration of Europe, uh, like Russia, for example, are be the big beneficiaries of what's happening. Well, how far does the pound go down, and how much does do, do the export benefits offset the other bad economic news? Well, ultimately, the UK economy is not really about merchandise goods and exports. It's really about the service sector. And so I'm still thinking that the British pound is going to have to make new lows. I look at like past crises in which they were like idiosyncratic, were just really UK crises. And Sterling does have this habit, having a leg down, people think about it for a while, and then take another leg down. And so I'm thinking that before it's all over, Sterling's falling to 115 to 120. And that is just based on the Brexit story, easier policy in the UK. And then later we get tightening in the US and a stronger US economy. Our frog. 
Tom Keene has just hopped out of the pot. Um, we're talking, Tom, about um, the long-term implications of the economy being like the frog cooked in the pot where people don't realize because the data have been good so far. They don't realize the trouble they're going to be in in England. Yeah, and th- there's been a real mix on this all in all. And I, I, my conversation the other day with John uh, Greenwood of um, of Invesco was along the same line. Mark, when you look at sterling, do you look at sterling, euro sterling rather, or do you look at cable? What, how do you measure it? in the litmus paper of your market. Yeah, so for a lot of our clients at Brown Brothers are going to be dollar-based investors. So, of course, I have to keep a very close eye on dollar against sterling. But when you try to think about the impact of the U.K. on the U.K. economy, this is where, and the only time I would use the uh, this trade-weighted basis, and that really means looking at euro-sterling, which today the euro is at new uh, two- or three-year highs against sterling. Yeah, it's really broken out. And so I, and I think that there's going to be more room to go there as well, even though the— <clears throat> ECB is still easing policy, and they might have to extend it. Yeah. But I think ultimately this is about a redivision of labor. And this is even if the continent gets a small part of the U.K. banking system, 10 percent, it can make a big difference for trade flows, for service flows, and for the strength of the continent yeah. versus the strength of the euro versus sterling. Your, your call on euro is nothing short of stunning, which is basically – let's walk through this again – the Bill Clinton dollar, the Robert Rubin dollar of the 90s, will be reduxed with maybe a Hillary Clinton dollar if she's elected. So we see dollar strength, and euro does, it's not a parity call or a 0.95 call. You are looking for a plunge in the euro versus the dollar. Well, the plunge is, it's really over a longer period of time. So as a strategist, I'm Fair. thinking about, uh, you know, I, I make my living on a three, three months and less, but take a look at sort of how we drive, right? Aim high in the steering. And what I'm looking at is not just the U.S. monetary cycle, years ahead of the ECB cycle, but I'm also looking at the politics. Think about what's going to happen next year. It's possible that Le Pen, the national front in France, captures the presidency. Some people even doubt that Merkel, who faces who could be up for election in the, in the fourth quarter or September next year, she might not run again. And we're looking at a much harder German line. And even even if these things don't take place ahead of the elections, you've got to imagine a very tough lines regarding Portugal, who's going to be who could be downgraded later this month by DBRS, the only rating agency that puts them in investment grade. You've got an Italian referendum in, uh, in early December. You've got a lot of political uncertainty coming in Europe. And so, for me, a combination of the economic mm-hmm. divergence and the political divergence, of course, assuming Trump doesn't win here, well, drives the euro sharply lower in the coming years. I want to rip up the script and come back. We'll talk Asia in a moment. Dollar-ruble. We've got a smart story out on Bloomberg today about recent strength of ruble. Obviously, that is oil strength. Does Mr. Putin want a stronger or weak ruble? Cuts both ways, doesn't it? Yeah, at the end of the day, I think that, the, I mean, I think that, uh, like the Chinese, the best thing that Putin could have probably is a stable ruble. Of yeah. course, it's uh, highly, you know, there's a lot of speculative, speculative plays right now. Uh, earlier, we were talking about uh, maybe the, uh, the fact that the, uh, the polls in the U.S. have widened out in favor of Clinton. That takes off some pressure off the Mexican peso after they raised rates last, uh, last week by 50 basis points. But some hedge funds are talking about a long ruble short peso position as a way to game a Trump right. victory. Mike, I'm feeling smart. I was going to go to Mark Chandler without looking at his research note about Naki Stocky, N-O-K-S-E-K. And then I noticed he led his research note with this right angle divergence. This is a moonshot of Norwegian krona versus the Swedish krona. Discuss. 
Yeah, but here's the story. I mean, it's a really simple story, divergence. Uh, the, the, uh, the Swedes want to, uh, despite having relatively strong growth and rising inflation, they insist on having unorthodox monetary policy because despite them being independent country, not being part of the monetary union, they still feel they have to shadow the ECB. And this is a lesson to the UK, who thinks that somehow leaving the EU, they're going to be having greater sovereignty. Sweden, independent country, still uses its monetary policy, tracks the ECB. Norway, on the other hand, has indicated a couple of weeks ago they are done easing, and they, the central bank has adopted a more neutral setting. And so this divergence between easy Sweden and a neutral <coughs> Norway central bank is seeing that cross go in Norway's favor in a big way. It goes, Norway, so you want to you be long Norway short Sweden? That, that has been the play for the last uh, couple of weeks, and that looks to me like it's got more room to go. Because, really? Because Norway, we're going to get more data this week from both countries, and we'll see that Norway and Sweden are both growing <clears throat> fine. Sweden insists on the soft monetary policy. Norway doesn't, and Norway's right. got this uh, tailwind now coming from higher oil prices. Is it, e and not that Mike and I do trades that are discussed on Bloomberg surveillance, but is, is it easy for somebody to affect this trade? Like if you, Is it knocky-stocky, right? Yes, and so I, and I, I think your point's well taken in the sense that our clients at Brown Brothers are asset managers. There's not a lot of assets for them to buy in Sweden and Norway. So exactly. Those, so those currencies tend to be uh, thinner, less actively traded, a bit thinner, and so they often trade like risk-on and risk-off currencies. Well, speaking of uh, risk-on and risk-off, uh, the yen, 101.35 right now, flat, uh, I was reading today an, an, another analysis uh, that basically said that has got to change. Otherwise, Abenomics, no matter what he does, fails. Uh, and so does Corona. Uh, that if they don't get a weaker currency, they cannot possibly make the economy better. Um, I, as Tom would say, discuss. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> do you, I, do you I, agree with that thesis? Yeah, I, I think that a lot of people misunderstand how the Japanese economy works. Many of us... Uh, so maybe my age or so, think about Japan, I think, as an export-oriented economy. It's just factually not true. Japan's exports as a percentage of GDP about what they are in the U.S. The real challenge for the Japanese is they've got this whole, they've been buying foreign assets for a long time. The part of the abenomics that's not talked about so much is the diversification of Japanese pension funds. As the Japanese pension funds reduced their holdings in Japanese assets, bought foreign assets, this triggered the yen's weakness. And now they're saying, well, hell, we've got to hedge ourselves. U.S. interest rates are rising. The yen's gotten a bit stronger, so we need to hedge ourselves. And that's exacerbating the upward pressure on the yen. So largely, I think this is the Japanese doing this to themselves, first diversifying their savings overseas, and now hedging their currency exposure. And so uh, uh, that, that, I think, is the heart of the problem, is the Japanese doing it to themselves. Yeah, and Robert Feldman of Morgan Stanley visited with us last week and was adamant that this is the most unified Japan domestically that he's ever seen. I mean, the 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 warfare, domestic, uh, rural Tokyo, all that stuff is gone. People are really behind Abe to try to fix this. Are you optimistic about that? I'm not very optimistic. I think that Abe is still, uh, he's got a foot in the old world and a foot in the new world. And because of that, he's not breaking from the old habits. And here's what's happened, really. They tried, before Kuroda, they, there's a BOJ governor, uh, Shiokawa. And he was more like the Bundesbank. Monetary policy is not to really stimulate the Japanese economy. It's not really to fight deflation. Along comes Kuroda, tries the opposite. Neither one works. And it's interesting, Shiokawa and Kuroda, they mean white and black. The roots are their words in, in Japanese. So they've tried the white cat, they've tried the black cat, and I'm suggesting they just need a better mousetrap. Mark Chandler, thank you so much. <laughs>
They're, they're, that's their names? Yes, so do, do, where do their names come from black and white? I did not know that. Mark Chandler, thank you so much for Brown Brothers. Frogs to cats. <clears throat> yes. We covered the animal spectrum here. And Naki Wild Kingdom with... <laughs> I'm going to put out the Naki Stocky chart to Bloomberg Radio Plus. I'll get that out also across social media. been a frequent and valued guest uh, Admiral James Trevita's Tufts School, uh, Tufts Fletcher School, I should say, in international relations. Admiral, I want to rip up the script. You were on the USS Valley Forge a few years ago, and then the USS Barry, I believe this is when John, uh, uh, this is like the Mediterranean and the Barbary mm-hmm. States and back then. Sure. At the time, Germany was reunifying. They celebrate that today. And I, I would love your thoughts on your NATO and Germany. It was not a given that Germany would stay within NATO in 1994, was it? Not at all. And, you know, so often, Tom, in history, we tend to think that what happened was what was always going to happen. And that yeah. just isn't the case. A lot of things are balanced on the head of a pin and they fall off. And Germany uh, had a long thought, and also Russia was pressing very hard for Germany not to come into NATO. So there were many countervailing forces. We're lucky to have them, and they've become a, an absolute anchor in the alliance. Interestingly enough, um, you know, you can trace this to today. The, the mm. uh, Germans uh, made some deals in terms of... Uh, being able to reunify that end up that it ended up with the euro being what it is absolutely right and over on the security side what you're seeing today is germany taking a more muscular stance they realize that there has to be a leading military power inside the european union and with the brexit that role falls completely to germany with some help from france so you're going to see right. more defense spending out of germany in the years ahead not that we are experts on this but let us go to you the paragraph in the wikipedia on german reunification on the exit of troops reads like a movie i mean the idea of the allied troops exiting german uh, territory and the russian troops ex i mean it was really choreographed wasn't it it absolutely was. And if you look back at the history of the actual invasion of Germany at the end of World War II, you saw each of the nations rushing to get as much territory as possible. Of course, this was Patton's role from the U.S. perspective. The Russians were doing the same, rolling in from the east. And it became a highly interlocked system of security and governments across that nation, which we only unspooled really 20 years ago. The question we we look at when we uh, look at what's going on in Europe in in the context of the political campaign is um, how strong is Europe in working with the United States these days uh, now this many years on from the reunification of Germany and the fall of the wall and how vulnerable do we remain to Russia, I guess we call it today? The European Union is under enormous centrifugal force right now, kind of pulling at it, pulling it apart. And obviously Brexit is huge, but also what's happening in Greece is weighing it down. 
as well as the ongoing pressure from Russia. Having said that, we will never have a better pool of partners in the world than the Europeans. Why? Because they share our values. Mm. They sit on top of incredibly important geography, and their defense spending is $300 billion a year. It's the second largest defense budget in the world. How do you— so how well, I Go don't ahead. interrupt, but just because of time, this is important, Admiral. How do you respond to critics, including Mr. Trump, that say they're not carrying their fair share? I would respond by saying, look at the facts on the ground. The Europeans have been with us in Afghanistan, Libya, the Balkans, Syria, counter piracy, counter cyber, counter terrorism. Uh, they work extremely well with us. And as I just mentioned, they spend $300 billion a year on defense, second largest in the world after the United States. What we should do, there's a grain of truth in Trump's comments. What we should do is push them to up their game a bit to hit the 2% of GDP. They're running about 1.6% 1. right now. So there's room for more European defense spending. And I think we're going to see that given the threats both from Russia and from no. The uh, Levant. I watched a little bit of baseball yesterday. It was really exciting. Vince and, Scully's last game. Yes, and that beautifully covered. And I watched Orioles take it in in, in win victorious against the Dreaded yes, Yankees. Shout out to uh, our friend John Angelos from the Baltimore Orioles. Yes. Congratulations. Congratulations. Good luck against the Blue Jays, and maybe we'll uh, yeah. see you farther down the line. Many times the Dreaded Yankees were saved by a third baseman in the hot corner when Ronald Torres made play after play yesterday to keep the Orioles honest. Admiral James Stavridis talks about the hot corner, which for those of you global is the crushing reality of catching the ball in the infield at third base. And then Admiral Stavridis, at a certain age, you look over to first base and you go, my, that's far away. <laughs> <laughs> I had that happen. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, you start to dream of just playing first base because it's a lot easier. Uh, you, you look over at that, you got to curve the ball to get it to first base. It's so far. Indeed. Wait, tell yeah. us about the hot corner of your world now, and that would be Greece. It would be. And, you know, I grew up as a baseball player. I'm a pretty uh, modest-sized guy, but I had reasonable hands and reasonable feet. And you're the first line of defense, and that's what Greece is to Europe. And as a result, my thesis is we need to be continuing to put focus on Greece. It kind of runs like a roller coaster of, uh, gosh, let's give them some money, let's take it back, let's impose conditions, etc. All understandable. But the root cause is the debt. And at some point, the international community is going to have to address some level of debt relief. And they ought to do it not just for the economic reasons, but for the geopolitical ones. Uh, now, Explain uh, explain why you're saying this. Are we talking about an invasion of Greece? And we're certainly seeing that in a, in a way. We've seen that with the refugees. Or are we talking about mm -hmm. Greece allying itself with somebody else because they can't continue to afford to be allied to the West? Both of those things are possibilities and very dangerous ones. Um, the, taking the former first, um, there's not going to be an overt invasion, but the potential, if this refugee deal with Turkey falls through, which it looks like it might, um, you'll see another uh, 500,000 refugees ramping up going 
to Greece to get to the rest of the European Union. However, the rest of the EU has closed their borders. They'll stay in Greece. That country could go into real instability. And as to the latter potential you mentioned, it would be in alignment with Russia. Two orthodox countries, Greece and Russia. Uh, a lot of Greeks look to Russia as an alternative to the West. There's a long tradition of that in Greece. would be very, very ill-served to see Greece drift away from NATO or the European Union. I don't predict that, but we need to be mindful of it as we try to support Greece. Well, I was in Greece quite a bit during um, the last mm -hmm. couple of years, and uh, the, there was always this speculation about Russia, but it mm -hmm. seemed the Russians are a lot less interested in the Greeks than the Greeks might have been in the Russians, because <laughs> the Russians don't want, to t or don't want to or aren't in a position to take on Greece's debts. Yeah, the, that's the good news, is that uh, Russia spread pretty thin in its, uh, shall we say, international activities at the moment. Syria is costing them a ton of money. They're under sanctions as a result of Ukraine. They're committed to rebuilding Crimea. They've got to prop up this crazy insurgent regime in southeastern Ukraine. So the uh, flow of cash that would be required while oil prices are this low just isn't at play. This was a more prevalent theory when oil prices prices were 140 bucks a barrel. Uh, let's hope they don't go back up there for a variety of reasons, this being one of them. What is the update on the funding of NATO? I mean, we talk about Greece, mm -hmm. except it takes money to make this happen. Mm -hmm. Is the U.S. writing the check for NATO? No. Um, the U.S., let's do defense budgets first. So U.S. spends about $600 billion a year on defense. Uh, the rest of NATO, Europe, spends $300 billion a year. So it's a kind of two-to-one ratio. We'd like to see that ratio be more, uh, a, a little bit more towards 50-50, because the two economies are roughly the same size at $16 trillion apiece. Um, let's talk NATO budget. NATO's budget to actually conduct operations uh, is conducted on the basis of support for troops, aircraft, and ships that are given to the alliance to conduct it. On that basis, it is closer to 50-50 in terms of where actual operational costs lay down. So no, we're not, quote, writing a check for NATO in any sense. Let me ask you this, though. Uh, suppose we did follow the recommendations of one of the presidential candidates and threatened to pull mm -hmm. out of NATO and until they pay up and, and increase their uh, spending at least to the treaty levels, uh, would they blink? Would they do that? Would we need to follow through? I think that we should not take an ultimatum approach to NATO because what could easily happen is the opposite reaction, which is the Europeans saying, you know what? We really don't want to be involved in the kind of global ideas that the United States has. We don't want to send troops to Afghanistan. We don't want to participate in Syria. We don't want to participate in Libya. We'll just hunker down here in fortress Europe, create a citadel. There are $300 billion a year is certainly sufficient to defend Europe. Mm -hmm. um, we need them as a partner. So why would we take an antagonistic approach? Having said that, hey, everything's negotiable. We ought to continue to put pressure on them, but we ought to do it from a framework of allies, friends, and partners, not ultimatums and the art of the deal. When you look at the launch into October here, and I guess to, mm -hmm. to go around the globe, how are you teaching the pivot at Fletcher School? That was so in four years ago, wasn't it? Are we pivoting still? 
We are pivoting. I wouldn't say it's been as rapid or as, uh, as, as determinative as the administration might have hoped. Why? Because of events in Syria and events in Ukraine. But that pivot, the, the long arc of history is going to move to the West inexorably for the United States to Asia. So, yes, the pivot continues. However, what we need to do in Asia is ensure we don't have a blow up on the North Korean peninsula. We need to work out a modus vivendi with China in the South China Sea. And above all, we need to work with our closest allies mm. and partners, Japan, <clears throat> Australia, South Korea. Admiral, thank you so much. James Trevitas, particularly there in German reunification. That was really special. Uh, markets in Germany closed today uh, in honor of uh, becoming one again. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. No 830 numbers. At 945, we get the market U.S. manufacturing PMI, which doesn't get a lot of publicity here in the United States. Market runs a lot of the PMI numbers around the world that we quote. Uh, and then at 10 o'clock, we get the ISM manufacturing survey, which is the uh, manufacturing survey that does get a lot of publicity. And we'll see how that turns out right now. The forecast is for it to come in at 50.4. Last month, it was at 49.4. Uh, generally thought of as contraction when it's below 50, although if you want to look at correlations, you got to go down to like 42 or so. Yeah, 43.2. I looked that up this morning yeah. in a footnote. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. Uh, we get auto sales all day. So far, we have not had any of the majors. Nissan out with a much better than forecast number. Uh, Michael Faroli, keep track of all this stuff. Uh, it is a very big week, culminating in Jobs Friday. He's J.P. Morgan's chief U.S. economist. Uh, we are, Michael, three months, well, eight weeks, basically, from a Fed meeting at which a decision could be made if we assume that they're not going to do anything on uh, November 2nd. Uh, so what numbers matter at this point? What would you be watching this week in terms of uh, the, what it tells you about the economy? So I think obviously, you know, you want to watch payrolls. Um, I would think we're going to get three payrolls between now and the December meeting. If they, I think if they average 150 or above, uh, a hike is more likely than not. Now, I'd also pay pretty close attention to the inflation numbers. We'll also get uh, three CPIs uh, between now and the meeting, and uh, uh, obviously we we don't need those. We for a hike to occur in December, uh, you'd like to see those at least continue around the same run rate they've been over the last few months. And I think uh, Yellen's press conference, um, she kind of twice basically said as long as things continue along the path they've been on, uh, that a hike before year end is likely. So I don't think we necessarily need to see a big acceleration in either the. Uh, employment or inflation numbers, but we also, you know, don't, you know, would need to see those not uh, lose any ground. Uh, I want to follow up on that, though, because the argument that Terullo and Brainerd have made mm -hmm. is uh, that we have, we are continuing along 
But continuing along in the same way we have been, the unemployment rate has stuck at 4.9% for several months now. It's flattened out. The, the decline has ended. So would it need to get better to impress anybody, uh, to impress sort of the center of, of the, uh, the group that wants to stay on hold? Right. Well, you know, I think as uh, the chair has emphasized, uh, numbers, uh, payroll numbers like 150,000, for instance, are faster than is sustainable in the long run. So it's true that the unemployment rate has been stable, but that's been thanks in part to a participation rate that seems to be bucking the um, structural trend down. So slack is being absorbed. Maybe not, you don't necessarily see it through the unemployment rate, but it is being absorbed. And I think for most of the committee, now, as you point out, Brainerd and Tarullo, they are obviously on kind of the dovish wing of the committee, but I think for most people in the committee, they are still thinking about policy in a forward-looking manner and thinking about uh, the fact that if slack is being absorbed over time, that will generate inflation pressures. So you're right that, you know, there's a lot of disagreement on the committee. Some people wanted to hike, right. um, you know, last month. So. Um, Where's wage inflation right now? It's You know, I understand there's 18 CPIs. Some of them are Feroli friendly, some aren't. Where's wage inflation, Michael Feroli? You know, so as you know, there's a bunch of different measures. Uh, most of them are clustered kind of around two and a half right now. Yep. Um, the ECI is 2.3, uh, average hourly earnings is 2.4, uh, comp per hour is running actually in the threes. What did you um, learn from income and spending late last week? Um, you know, it came in mostly in line with expectations. Uh, it's interesting that the saving rate did move a little bit higher. So um, uh, I think some of the consumer euphoria, if you will, in the, over the springtime seems to be right. um, not quite as vigorous. Now, that being said, the early word is that auto sales bounce back in September. So I don't want to okay. you know, sound... Yeah, and, and consumer confidence is up big. So, so people yeah. are happy but not spending now? Uh, <laughs> Again, I, I think we're going to see a real consumption number for the third quarter pretty close to 3%. So that's nothing to sniff at, particularly in this kind of low-growth environment. I, I look at where we are in the phrase, and I put this out over the weekend, marginal propensity to save, which is basically mm -hmm. you wake up and say, the glass is half full, I need to save. Is that where we are, or is, is it, are we going to get back to the consumer that Mike mentions in confidence? Right. So, Thomas, I think you know, um, really since the crisis, the, the link, normally we would think that wealth is a big determinant of how much consumers want to save. When wealth goes up, mm -hmm. they save less. And we've had a huge wealth boom over the you know, past seven or eight years, and yet the saving rate has been um, very little change in the five handles. So normally we would have expected the saving rate to be down around two percent or so with, with the wealth numbers we've been seeing. So there has been a shift in psychology after this, the crisis. Uh, I think that's pretty clear. Um, that said, uh, you know, you can still get good consumption numbers like we did in the second quarter and we think in, in the okay. third quarter as well. So, so maybe some of that, you know, psychological fear factor is starting to slowly right. fade away. Michael McKee and Tom Keen with us. Michael Faroli, uh, J.P. Morgan. Michael, you, you, you mentioned the asymmetric uh, nature of the dots. They can only migrate in one direction. Asymmetry seems to be the almost the, the front and center philosophy or behavior 
of good policymakers right now, this fear of getting it wrong. Discuss the asymmetry that Janet Yellen lives right now. Well, I think the fact that interest rates, normally one would say interest rates can't go negative. They can't go deeply negative. And so that means that it's easy to uh, choke off inflation if we need to by hiking rates. It's harder to stimulate the economy by cutting rates. So that asymmetry is uh, an important reason why uh, the chair and the rest of the committee have been so cautious over the last year and uh, in moving rates higher, because if they do it too quickly, uh, reversing it is uh, is difficult, whereas if they're behind the curve, they can always catch up. And so that, that I think, is the, the most important asymmetry they're thinking about right now. What about the re- remorse out farther? Mike and I were looking at the Japanese target fund rate from 15, 20 years ago. They made that rate rise in the early 2000s and then had to turn around and reduce it. Does that live right, in the yeah. minds of our bankers? I think so. Um, that seems to be. You know, I don't think any central banker wants to, uh, you know, be accused by history of making that same mistake. That's why we're uh, nominating Michael McKee to be another governor. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he'll be able to take it. <laughs> um, when uh, the the counter argument to the idea of the asymmetry would be that the Fed has to uh, make sure it's not behind the curve on mm-hmm. inflation, and there are those now who are arguing that on the FOMC. And if you're going to worry about that, then you have to worry about how quickly the Fed can respond. Where do you come down on the argument that the Fed has more time because uh, inflation dynamics have changed enough that we aren't going to see uh, the huge uh, kind of breakout that we might have seen in the past when inflation started to get going? I think there's something to that. And if you look at the inflation expectations numbers, whether market-based or survey-based, um, it doesn't feel like we're behind the curve in that uh, dimension. And so that should buy them some time. Now, um, we obviously are at a point in the cycle where it's uh, it's not an easy call. And I think that's why you have smart people in the committee who are both arguing for a hike uh, last month, as well as arguing for no hikes at all this year. And, you know, I think those there have been times in the past few years where I think they were all together because it was an easier call. And now you're at this point in the cycle where um, I think it's it's really a judgment call more, more than anything. And so, you know, I, our view is that they go in December. Uh, and I think that would be if things hold together here, consistent with uh, with good policy in our, our opinion. If they, uh, if they go in December, then how long do they stay on hold until the next one? Uh, they're f- they the, they move the dots to suggest only two next year. So yeah. do, do we uh, then go on hold for an extended period of time, uh, deliberately or accidentally, uh, given yeah, how, yeah. how this year evolved? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, our, our our guess really is that after December, the next move isn't until next, uh, next June. And in part, that slow pace is... Um, Allowed, afforded them by the fact that the global economy seems to um, really have indigestion if, uh, if the Fed signal anything um, um, faster. So, uh, you know, we think that would be consistent with probably some dollar strengthening, some import price pressure downward, and, and thereby buying them time to be as gradual as they think. The 3% GDP call you now have, is that mm-hmm. a, I know Mike talked about this earlier. How can you scope that out three months, six months, nine months, 12 months? Or we got into this volatility, particularly 
with first-of-year weakness where you can't do that anymore. Yeah, yeah. So our 3% is just for the third quarter, which is... It's a one-off. Yeah, yeah. I think you're Does James Diamond know you're doing that? Does Mr. Diamond know that (laughs) Feroli and Kasman are doing one-offs? Melman would have never let this happen. Uh, So we had some very weak inventory numbers in the first half of the year, and that you got a little bit of relief in the third quarter, but we don't, you know, yeah. we don't think that's going to persist on into the, on to the fourth. Where we would like it, but we think we're probably going to settle well, back down. percent. Mike, Mike, Michael McKee, Michael Ferroli, both of you jump in here. Why do we always ebb in the first quarter? Is it because of taxes? So, uh, I'll voice my opinion first. I don't think there is a. Um, I don't think it's taxes. Uh, it does seem to be that there may be a little bit of problem with the seasonal adjustment of some of the source data that that is used to produce GDP. The statistical agencies are working on that, but I I think that project is not yet complete. Michael McKee, is it a Sum Nolan NHL? I mean, where do we go with this? (laughs) Sometimes if we take time off for the uh, Olympics, uh, that may have an effect. No, I I think Michael's probably right. I'm not as qualified as he to offer an opinion, but I know they are working on it, and it does seem to be a thing. at this point, though, what kind of matters is where we're going to end up in the fourth quarter. You've got, uh, for the third quarter, roughly 3%, Michael. And mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're still shy some data. But what do you think about the current quarter? I can say that since this is October 3rd. Um, right. Because the, the kind of growth numbers we're going to get for this quarter are what's going to matter mm-hmm. to uh, Yellen and company by the time we get to the middle of December. Sure, sure. So we have 2% penciled in. Uh, for the fourth quarter, and I would emphasize the pencil part because uh, we don't really have any data. Two um, percent has been roughly the average over the past few years, so um, that's uh, that's an initial guess. But uh, uh, if we get the auto sales numbers that people are looking for today, I think that would be um, yeah. you know good trajectory heading into the into the fourth quarter. Michael, thank you so much, Michael Ferroli with J.P. Morgan revising. The View, ending September 30, up to 3%. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.